0: Thank you, Larry and Denise. Um, I want to begin this morning, um, and this is not in my notes, but I just want to take a minute and, um, and mention that so many of you donate so much time in um, so many ways to the church, uh, little ways and small ways and big ways, um, often behind the scenes. And the reality is what we do week in, week out, as we gather together, as we minister to our community and with our community, um, those things don't go unnoticed. And so this is just a moment for me to just say thank you to all of you who serve and, um, if you don't serve, we'd love to get you plugged in, um, but it's a great way for us to, to minister together, and so just want to say thank you this morning to all of you. Um, some of you would be appalled if I called you by name, so I won't, but I'll just say thank you. Um, and so this week I've, I've been thinking about, it's ironic what I've been thinking about as you look outside this morning, I've been thinking about barbecues. <laughs> Sounds really nice, right? Um. I was thinking about how, how growing up, so many of our family gatherings were around a grill in a backyard, and as we got older, we, we played cornhole. Some of you call it bags. I don't know what that is. That isn't the game. Um, it's called cornhole. It's the thing with the two boards where you throw the bags full of corn. Hence, cornhole. Anyway... Um, we, we gathered around those kind of things with family and friends. And then I remember a summer in college where I spent the summer in Tennessee working at a ranch for, uh, um, underprivileged and abused children. And, and every Saturday we had the day off. And so we played sand volleyball all day long. And they would often grow out in the evening. And, and we would just sit around that fire for, well, for hours, and then we'd step way too late and get up for church the next morning. And we were at a, a lula, which is kind of like a, a fancy barbecue, um, and I remember watching the sunset over the ocean and thinking to myself, this is probably a really good thing, And and it just keeps going on. I remember kids' birthdays, and nearly every one of my kids' birthdays, because of when they fall, we have family and friends over for a cookout. And there's lots of conversation, and there's lots of things going on, and begin thinking to myself, are these kind of like moments of heaven? And, and I can talk about nights we've spent here since we've lived here, sitting on the beach, watching the sunset at Pier Marquette. I could talk about, if I'm really honest, I know you, many of you are from Michigan, and so this is appalling to you for me to say out loud, but I still love the ocean more than anything else. Um, I didn't grow up near the ocean, but man, whenever I have the opportunity to go to someplace with an ocean, I love the smell of salt water. I love the smell as when you move closer to the water, that just smell kind of permeates everywhere you are, and you walk outside and you can't miss it. Oh, About every two or three years, if I don't find a way to get back to an ocean, I really go through withdrawals, and I start smelling it at night, dreaming about it, because I do think these are moments, glimpses of heaven. I really do. And there's something in this resurrection of Jesus that changes the way we understand the world. It changes the way we do everything. In fact, I think those, what makes those moments so full of greatness is that we share them with other people. See, heaven's one of those interesting things. I, I was this week thinking about it, and, and often a lot of what we believe, we believe from popular culture. Really, it's not biblically based. It's popular culture or shallow Christianity. That's usually where we find our understanding of what heaven might be. Or books where people will say they went to heaven and then recant their stories later. I mean, there's all kinds of moments where we say things about we've been to heaven or we think this or that. In fact, we say things like, well, you know, our loved one is an angel in heaven. And, and no, they're not. I'm sorry. Um, they're people. They never quit being people. The reality for us is we believe in a God who redeems us. And and in fact, one of the things I'm going to say this morning is a little bit going to wreck you some, but, but bear with me. In fact, I don't believe any of our loved ones, myself included, are in heaven. I think they're in paradise. I think they're with the Lord. I think Jesus is very particular about the language he uses on the cross. But heaven hasn't come yet. At least not all the way yet. See, heaven is one of those things we talk so much about. But honestly, we probably don't know much about it. I did some research this week. I mean, it's not great research, but it's, I typed in Amazon.com and then typed in the word heaven to see what came up in all categories. And so on Amazon.com, there are 1,024,388 references to heaven. In Amazon Books, I looked in books because I thought i like to read. Let's see how many are in books. In books, there are 365,139 books that include heaven in the title. And in movies and TV, there are 14,403 titles that include the word heaven. We are enamored with heaven, but we really don't know much about it. There are all these claims about heaven. We recognize in the scriptures that we could say, in, in many ways, the kingdom of God is to be heaven, but it really is one of these subjects and topics that's hard to understand. And in light of the resurrection, that leads us to a place where we begin saying, well, what? What about this? What about that? So I think it's so important in the Lord's Prayer, what is the line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? Oh, that's so good. We, we sometimes miss that line. We miss the intention of that line. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. See, so I have a couple questions I want to ask, and I want to make sure I get them right, but what if, what if heaven has come, And we get glimpses of it all the time. What if Jesus kept saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come because he meant it? What if as Jesus left the tomb, heaven became a very real reality here and now? And what if the reality of the resurrection brought in heaven? I mean, there are kind of simple questions. Kind of complex to answer in some ways. Frankly, they're probably above my head and yours. Or maybe you get it, and that's great, and you can tell me about it afterward. But but it's one of those ideas, this idea that the resurrection changed everything, that the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of Jesus, this second Sunday of Easter. We're still in this Easter, this Easter, the season of Easter. And if we're not careful, we miss that, and we move right on, and we, we didn't put Jesus right back up on the cross if we're not careful. And we miss this, new life, this resurrection life, this resurrection of the body, this changes everything. And so our text this morning is from John chapter 21, and I'll invite you to stand as we read uh, from John chapter 21. And I'll apologize this morning if I happen to run long or short. My watch battery is dead and didn't know it till I got here today, so I'm, I'm sorry. John chapter 21, here's what the gospel writer of John writes. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore. But a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But he was so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now this story ends or begins kind of in an interesting fashion. It begins with a particular event that we don't think much about. And I I was trying to think how we could understand what's happening in this scene. It's the disciples, uh, Peter, James, John, Thomas, Nathaniel, and a few others, are gathered together and Jesus come back from the dead and they're probably excited about that, but they really don't get this idea. He said, well, you know, you're going to receive my spirit. Or you receive my spirit. and Go and tell others. And, and they're like, well, what are we telling them? What are we supposed to do? And kind of aren't really sure what to do next. They've experienced this significant, incredible moment, but they really don't know what to do with it. And so Jesus, is, or so Jesus, so Peter says what often made sense to him. He says, well, let's, I'm going to go fish. I know how to fish. I was a fisherman before I met Jesus. That's what I'm going to go do now. And the other guys think, well, we don't really know what to do either. We've kind of been following this guy. We'll join you. Let's go fish too. We don't know where Jesus is. We don't know what's going on. Yep, fishing sounds like a good idea. And they head out to fish. They spend all night on the water. I'm told of particularly in that kind of fishing and that understanding of fishing in that part of the world that you often fish at night, and if you didn't catch anything at night, you knew there was no point in fishing during the daytime because it was going to be a waste of your time. So all night long, all night long they're out fishing. All night long they're out on the water. Nothing. No fish, no nothing, nothing. Daybreak's coming, so they start heading in because they know we've wasted our night. It happens. Talk to modern fishermen. They know there are times they go out, they throw out their nets, and nothing comes in. Disciples start taking the boat back to shore. and On the way back, someone from the shore yells out to them, Hey, uh, did you guys catch anything? They're like, who is this guy? What's he talking about? No, no. Well, hey, once you try the other side of your boat and throwing the net on the wrong side? And I can just imagine being one of the guys in the boat going, do you realize what we've done for a living? I mean, do you know what we do? We are actually fishermen. Who are you on the seaside? Well, I mean, that guy's cooking something, so maybe he caught some fish. All right, we'll give it a shot. And they throw their net on the other side, and they just happen to catch a bunch of fish. And something clicks for those who maybe couldn't quite make out the figure. We don't know if it was foggy. We don't know the whole scene. We don't know everything that's going on. But then Peter realizes this must be Jesus. And he hops out of the boat. And he takes off. And he does leave everybody else to take care of the work for a few minutes. That's kind of the bummer of this deal. I mean, he got so excited, he just said, hey, you guys, good luck with that. I'm out of here. It makes a point of saying he grabbed his... his jacket, basically, because he was been wearing what was equivalent to swim trunks in his day, like his undergarment. Um, And if you're going to greet someone in any kind of religious setting in that world, you had to put on clothes because you just didn't go greet someone in your underwear. It was probably inappropriate. And so he thought, well, I should probably not do that, so I'm going to go meet Jesus again. Jesus says, "Well, well, bring your fish. I'm making breakfast. Come eat. And as they pull the fish in, and Peter eventually goes back to help, there are 153 fish. And John, if you haven't noticed in his gospel, he he gives numbers a lot, and he kind of points out things, and you think, well, what does it really matter? 153, is that like a lot? And and some scholars will do kind of weird algorithms and math equations to come up with the number of 153, but the best explanation we have for this is in that world, at that time, seas in the sea was in this idea that every fish there was. And every kind of fish that was in the sea came out and every kind of fish that was there, they brought in. And the net didn't break. See, later, John, what he wants us to understand in the middle of this is that this is much how the church is supposed to be. In the church, there is room for every kind of person In fact, there's so much room for every kind of person that even when it seems like it's too large that they can't all fit together, that there's always enough room that the net won't break, that the church will always hold them all. Two other significant things were, one, Jesus used them to fish. But at the same time, he didn't need their fish. He already had his own. See, I think if we're not careful, we we forget that Jesus, somehow, some reason, I haven't quite figured it out all the way yet, why he uses you and I and doesn't just do it himself, because he can obviously get fish himself, but he chooses to use you and I to be fishers in the midst of this. Fishers that begin to tell people, hey, listen, if you'll encounter the Jesus that we have encountered, he will radically change your life. He'll bring you into this resurrected life, this new life, this redeemed life. He'll say to you, come, follow me, and come eat. John makes a point to say this is the third time they've seen Jesus after his resurrection. In other words, this is the fullness of the picture of God's redeemed, resurrected man. And I love kind of the next moments in the story because they basically have a barbecue. Gather around a fire, throw something on the grill, Jesus is the one flipping the burgers. Fish in this day, probably kind of the equivalent of a burger today. I don't know when fish became delicacies like they are for us because they weren't like that for them. But it's this kind of picture of heaven. It's a picture of this redeemed person, this redeemed, this resurrected body gathered with his friends, eating a meal. I don't want to spend a lot of time this idea of heaven today. I really don't. I think the point of the resurrection is to remind us that, that God redeems the whole person. It isn't just like this idea of this soul, resu- resurrected soul, but it's someday that God redeems our bodies too. Now, I don't know if we could be like our 21-year-old selves or whatever the, the best of yourself you think you were. I don't know what that looks like. But I know this. There's something in the resurrected Jesus that brings hope to them. There's something in this moment that we see that even after death and when we come back to life, that we still need food. I mean, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. When I was a kid, I I was afraid that heaven would be like harps and clouds and singing. Like I said, we're shaped by popular culture. And i got to be honest with you, that depressed me. I found hope in that idea of heaven in this way. Well, if God says it's good, it must be good. But honestly, it just depressed me. The idea of singing all day and listening to harps, I mean, that just sounded miserable. Now, I don't know if there'll be golf or college basketball. I kind of hope there'll be nice fairways. I don't know. But I do believe there'll be food and conversation and glimpses of the heaven we experienced in this life. I do believe that in the resurrection, it's the reason... Revelation twenty one says that heaven came here, a new heaven and a new earth. It's the redemption of all things, the resurrected bodies. It's this idea that God once redeemed it in Him is new life in new different ways. See, the resurrection is important because it doesn't mean God screwed up. Up, oh, gotta replace all these bodies, redo this all. No, no, no. I'll, I'll make these ones right. It's why how we live matters. What we do matters. This idea of redeeming our bodies, this redemption stories all throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, especially in this story with Jesus, especially in his conversation with Peter. In his conversation with Peter, Peter and he are sitting there, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. And I know Peter. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you, you know I love me. I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, I'm a little insulted now. You know I love you. I'm sorry. I love you. Peter, feed my lambs. It's a significant moment, it's a significant moment for Peter because so often we all know that we have done things, we have done things and we've said we love Jesus and then our life hasn't reflected it. We all know that Peter did that three times he disowned Jesus on the night he died. Three times he disowned him. Jesus reminds him, hey, by the way, the baggage you carry, the junk you have done, what you have done, I, I forgive you. And also, I love the invitation to Peter. It's not just to watch the sheep. I mean, that's good. But it's to feed the sheep. It takes action. So that you would follow him and find new life. If you love Jesus, it requires action in our life. I love the way, um, and he in his commentary on this passage, says it this way. Here's the secret of all Christian ministry, yours and mine, lay and ordained, full-time or part-time. It's the secret of everything from being a, a quiet, back row member of a prayer group to being a platform speaker at huge rallies and conferences. If you're going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Somewhere, deep down inside, there's a love for Jesus. And though, goodness knows, You've let him down enough times He wants to find that love to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and to give you new work to do. These are not the things for you to do to earn the forgiveness. Nothing can ever do that. It is grace from start to finish. They are things to do out of the joy and relief that you already are forgiven. Things we are given to do precisely as the sign that we are forgiven. We act not to earn grace, but as a response of God's grace to us. Our lives are a response to his grace in all that we've said and done. And some of us probably need more grace than others. We probably do. It's probably true. But we don't want to ever underestimate the depth of God's grace, and it's why I want to share this story from John Ortberg that I've shared before, but it really, really is good. Some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. It was roughly the shade of Pepto-Bismol, but because it represented to us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when he found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. But we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children, we said. Give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, we all knew clearly the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play On or around the mauve sofa, remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in this house you may freely sit, but upon the sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. (laughs) Then came the fall. One day, there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who'd chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it, Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. "'Do you see that, children?' she asked. "'That's a stain. A red stain. A red jelly stain.' The man at the door says, "'It's not coming out. Not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children?' That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. <laughs> Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence. For the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they'd never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa, and I knew I wasn't saying anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, such as in a book I was going to write, maybe. The truth is, of course, we've all stained the sofa. Some of the stains are small and barely noticeable but some of them bleed through the entire fabric of our lives. See, I don't know if the story of Peter is your story, but it's probably been mine far too often. story in which we have done something that's permeated into our life, but there's something about the grace of God. Something about the grace of God in this exchange between he and Peter, where he comes and he says, Peter, do you love me? You know that I do, Lord feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know that I do, Lord, and take care of them. In other words, we can never underestimate the depth of God's grace and his love for us. That comes to us and takes those red jelly stains that seem as if they cannot be erased. He says, don't you get what the resurrection did? Don't you get that once you've encountered the resurrected Jesus that you can't go back again, that you can't go back to this way of life and which you keep creating the same stain again and again and that same stain in your life, don't you understand my grace? I don't want that stain to be there any longer. And though hopefully none of you buy a mauve sofa, especially one the color of Pepto-Bismol, but hopefully each of us will choose to come to know Jesus in such a way that we'll accept his grace, that he takes those stains, the baggage in life, those moments where we know we've let him down, and he takes all those moments and he cleans them. Even though the man at the furniture store say, I don't know what you do about that, or your neighbor or your friend, or maybe even that person next to you has said, I don't know what we do with God's grace in that way. But we choose to say, I believe in a resurrected Lord, that we encounter him, that heaven comes here. And once we've encountered that heaven, then we live our life doing our best, and in every way we live, to create moments of heaven all around us. Because we recognize that in the resurrection, heaven came here. Now we know it's not in its fullness yet, and that day will come. In just a moment, we're going to take communion, which really is symbolic of us, of this idea that God comes and gives us his grace. God comes and he says to us, I know who you have been and what you have done, and in spite of you, I love you enough that in my son's death, but ultimately, more importantly, in his resurrection, I want to give you new life. And so as we take these elements for us today, they are grace through and through. Grace not that we can earn, but grace that is unmerited. Grace that we can accept and receive. Grace that just like Peter, we say, uh, Lord, you know that I love you. I want to respond in the rest of my life. It's an overflow of that love. A response to your grace. I've invited some to come help with communion and invite them to come now. And we're going to sing how deep the Father's love as they come to help with communion as a reminder for us that really the resurrection is about the depth of the grace of God and his love for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the way you continue to be with us, for the way you have gone about redeeming and helping and changing and transforming us. We know this morning as we prepare to take these elements that they really are symbolic of your love and your grace for our lives. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to receive them well. That we know it's not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done and who you are. And we thank you for that this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we'll invite everyone who would like to come, everyone who knows that Jesus is Lord, to come and take these elements. We have um, open communion, and all are invited to be participants if they choose.